I'm Brooke Werchapter, ECAR's Director of Community Organizing. This is our podcast, Home. Jewish law calls on us to meet each person's basic needs. In fact, the Torah commands that we give a person who is needy sufficient for what he lacks, according to what is lacking to him. Our tradition recognizes that stable, safe housing is one of those fundamental needs. We as a society, however, don't live up to that standard. Our society blames people who are suffering for their own plight and teaches us to shame those that can't afford to meet these basic human needs. Those of us who are struggling financially are taught to believe that we have failed as individuals, even when public policy choices have made housing unaffordable for many of us. Here in Los Angeles, a recent study cited by the Los Angeles Times found that to pay the $1,800 median rent on the average one-bedroom apartment, a person would need to earn at least $72,000 a year. The median salary in Los Angeles is $65,000. This increasing unaffordability of housing is fueling the homelessness crisis. It's causing tremendous suffering for the most marginalized in our society, for poor people, for Black and Latino people, for immigrants, for older folks, and for people with disabilities. And it's hurting us too. We know that the housing crisis is helping fuel homelessness and causes tremendous suffering for the most marginalized in our society. But we often fail to acknowledge the anxiety that this lack of affordable housing and fair wages creates for those in our own community that live between the difference of our median income and median rent. We want to reject the shame that we have been taught to accept. We want to change the laws that have helped enforce this inequality. These stories all come from members of ICAR, but they could be anybody's stories living here in LA or anywhere in our country today. I spent my last year of high school in homelessness, living in a concrete crawl space that bordered a drainage canal and a highway overpass. I never used drugs or alcohol, and in many ways, living under the embankment was safer than home. It's impossible to sleep soundly at night. I was lucky to be in school five days a week because I could sit down, rest, and have access to clean water and toilets. My primary focus after food was water a place to rinse my clothes, and a place to rest. Once you are homeless, you cross into the wilderness, the wilderness of non-person. So it's okay for people not to see you. You're erased. There's a dissonance between the pain of being ignored and the relief in being invisible. Non-person means folks look right through you. Or they see you and they're looking at their worst nightmare. In the split second before people turn away, there is disgust and distaste in their eyes. And homeless people are very, very astute at catching that. In a high school of 2,000 students, no teacher, counselor or administrator ever saw my distress. 
Nobody noticed. No one approached me with help. I was shocked when a teacher reprimanded me harshly for eating out of the garbage in the school cafeteria. Not only did he reprimand me, but he threw money at me. I didn't pick it up. I let it hit my chest and fall to the floor. I wouldn't have been eating out of the garbage if I had had the money for lunch. Being homeless means ordinary communication and manners disappear. After about a week having a regular conversation or following societal rules, norms, becomes secondary to basic survival. Homeless people are seen as frightening and dangerous. But I can tell you from a reversed point of view, so-called regular people are very scary. The isolation is bad, but we are at the mercy of other people's assumptions and compulsions, and that is sometimes worse. I became hypervigilant early on, trying to predict who or what might be risky. And this made asking for help almost impossible. There's also sometimes this weird sense of safety. I would often pass a little hamburger place, not a chain, and go to the back and check their garbage for something good. So one time, the cook came out and motioned for me to come inside. I sat down at the counter, farthest from the single customer. There's an old guy sitting by the door. The cook says, this guy thinks you're too thin, so he's buying you fries. So I get to sit at a counter and wolf down a big plate of French fries smothered in ketchup. When I was done, the cook said, have more. Refills are included. I remember the old guy never looked up. He never looked at me, maybe because he didn't want to shame me. Those French fries and the humanness with which they were offered, they're tiny acts of caring. But even the tiniest thing, the doing thing, should never be underestimated. Hi, my name is Kathleen Early. I'm an actor and member of the ECAR community. I'll be reading the stories of contributors who wanted to share their stories, but preferred to remain anonymous. I'm 28 years old and have an immunocompromising disabling chronic illness, and I've been on Social Security Disability since April 2021. In fall 2019, this illness, autoimmune autonomic neuropathy and a primary immunodeficiency, had landed me in the hospital twice, and the second time, my dad happened to be in town visiting from New York. He had also just lost his job two months prior. During that second hospitalization, my dad brought up applying for disability, which I really <laughs> didn't want. I saw myself getting better at some point and still do. I did not want to bear the stigma of being deemed, quote, totally and permanently disabled by the state at age 25. I went to an Ivy League college. I play multiple instruments, and I'm extensively trained in Muay Thai. Getting on disability felt like signing up to have my future formally taken away from me. 
and I've been working hard to make my future a bright one despite being very sick. Still, I ended up applying anyway. My dad also strongly recommended that we move in together, and I felt I had no other choice given how hard it had become for me to function. That December, my dad and I moved into a two-bedroom apartment in the same neighborhood in Santa Monica where I'd previously been living on my own. And it was expensive, but it was where my dad wanted to live. COVID rolled around shortly thereafter, and we started isolating at my doctor's recommendation about a full month before the stay-at-home orders were issued. Throughout this whole trajectory from hospitalizations to COVID, I was acutely aware that I would be very homeless and very dead without my father. I alone cannot afford housing in our neighborhood on my $1,300 a month disability payment, let alone anywhere in LA County. Who can afford to live in LA on $1,300 a month? Neither can I have a roommate because of my primary immunodeficiency and how careful I have to be with my exposure to pathogens. All of this has ignited a ubiquitous anxiety about how easily I could be without housing and the means to survive. And how many disabled slash chronically ill individuals are truly at the mercy of their families and social networks when it comes to getting their basic needs met. My father and I are close, but being in complete isolation, just the two of us for much of the pandemic, while being unable to bring in any outside help because of both finances and COVID, brought out major underlying issues in our family dynamic. This has made our home a very stressful place to live, which has taken a massive toll on my health, even as I've spent the whole pandemic going through immunoglobulin replacement therapy and working my ass off to get better. My cost of living is high because of the many needs associated with my illness, so my father can't afford for us to live separately until he gets a new job, which has proven challenging for him at age 68. I have been carrying this massive weight around, worrying about how I will ever be physically able to earn the six-figure living that would enable me to live on my own in our city and get back the peace that comes with having my own space. It really should be a human right to convalesce in peace, which hasn't been possible for me when living with my father, and there is truly nowhere else I could live. I know I cannot be the only chronically ill person who experiences this. The cost of housing in LA County, while unaffordable at baseline, is especially unaffordable for those who are unable to work due to illness or disability and unable to live with roommates. And it makes convalescing in peace unattainable unless you happen to have a trust fund or a very wealthy and generous family. I have no idea what I'll be able to accomplish in the next few years, but right now, it feels like being able to afford my own housing would be nothing short of a miracle.
I imagine that finding a safe, affordable home in Southern California is hard enough when you're blessed by God's good fortune or the fruit of your own labor. But there's not a lot of wiggle room if anything were to go wrong. I was 25 when my mother found herself in more and more pain, the reason for which doctors couldn't explain. It was getting increasingly difficult for her to work, and because there was no medical diagnosis for her condition, she didn't qualify for government assistance. I was making minimum wage, and with no financial respite for her, I had to move into her one-bedroom apartment in Laguna Niguel, a whopping $1,800 for 770 square feet, which today, six years later, is renting at $3,000. My mother worked when she could until the doctors finally determined that she would need two of her vertebrae fused. For the next two years, I supported us. Needless to say, there was some stress. The stress of my mother's pain, the stress of dealing with endless doctor's appointments, the stress of having no privacy, the stress of living on a couch. We finally decided that a two-bedroom apartment would be the only way for both of us to keep our sanity. But of course, that would come at an additional cost. Rent went up to $2,400, and in order to bridge the gap, I took on two other jobs. From Monday through Friday, I worked from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at a photography studio. Then, I drove to my second job and worked from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. On the weekends, I worked 4.30 a.m. to 12 p.m. at a coffee shop, and then 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. at the same second job I worked during the week. I lived off of $3 protein bars and obsessively checked the discount rack at Ralph's, keeping my meals small and budgeted. Any groceries I tried to save for my mother, who could not drive and could only walk short distances, much less stand to cook. During her recovery, it was discovered she would also need a disectomy. To add insult to injury, when it was time to file taxes, I found that by working three jobs, I had made too much and owed the government $2,000, a further punishment for being poor. Finally, our saving grace came when my mother was accepted into 55 and older housing and her application for disability benefits was approved. She moved into affordable housing and I moved into a room in someone's house for $800. I got to quit one of my jobs and begin rebuilding my life and career. Though I lived in Orange County, I decided my best bet was to find a job in LA. And I have, right here at ECAR. Not only do I feel it aligns with my values, it pays me more than I have been paid in the past. When I first got the job, I searched everywhere for a studio, but no matter how many times I checked Craigslist, Julia, Facebook, etc., all I could find were shared spaces. Under pressure to find a new home closer to the office, I settled on a room in a building with one kitchen that I share with seven other people in South LA. The cost? $1,000. But at least I have my own bathroom. The neighborhood isn't bad, I've lived in worse, but it's certainly not walkable. When I volunteer to deliver Mishlakmanot or welcome bags to new members on my side of town, there's not much for me to do. I was hoping that this day would be temporary, but every week I get on Craigslist, the site I have used for all of my apartments, and every week I see ads for 200 square foot bachelor pads with no kitchen for anywhere from $1,200 to $1,400. Having a kitchen is one of my requirements, and that luxury means I can expect to pay $1,500 to $1,700. But perhaps even more concerning than this is that the listings are always the same. For the past month, I have seen maybe five or six new listings. There are just no homes available when you're in my income bracket. I've done the math. If I want a studio in a walkable neighborhood with a kitchen and without a long commute, 
I need to make 65k after tax. Not to mention a credit score that is much higher than mine after taking care of a sick family member for three years. I have no expectation that I will ever buy a house. My idea of a lucky break would be if I could get some of my friends to rent a house with me. I'm grateful that my mother has her own home, and though I still send her money every month to cover her expenses, she will continue to receive some financial support. I appreciate my job here and the people I get to work with every day. But actually, living in Los Angeles does not seem tenable for someone like me, no matter how hard I work. At this point, the only realistic goal I can allow myself in terms of a home is having more than one shelf in the fridge that is mine. When my ex-husband and I first moved back to LA, we searched for a home near where my sisters lived. Our son Dexter was a year old and we returned to LA so we could be near family. Looking for a place to call home took a while. Eventually, we found a three bedroom house in the Pacific Palisades that somehow was affordable to rent. We were so excited. We had a yard and a tree with a swing. The street was full of kids and families. My sisters lived nearby, and there was a genuine sense of community there. We could walk a few blocks to the bluffs and look out at the ocean. My husband was working, and we felt comfortable and safe. Until six months later, when I didn't, and I had to kick him out. Dexter was now two and stayed with me. I immediately got a job making about 10 bucks an hour. Dexter's dad was intermittent at best with child support, and I was afraid to go after him for more support. I was afraid of him, period. So money got really tight really fast, and it became clear that we were going to need to downsize. So I found a sublet apartment in Santa Monica. I struggled to support us, and my rent was often late. One morning, I opened the door to find an eviction notice. I was terrified. But soon, a friend with two young kids had found an opportunity in Venice. Dexter and I would have our own cottage, and we'd be sharing a fenced-in yard with two families and their kids. So we packed up and moved to Venice. The cottage was sunny and bright. I couldn't quite figure out why all three units were open at the same time, or why we got in so quickly without a down payment. I figured it out within a couple of weeks. It was 1994, the height of gang violence in L.A., and what I did not know then is that the corner of Brooks and Fifth, where we'd moved, was a hot spot. A couple of weeks after moving in, my friends and I were having a meal in my cottage when suddenly we heard a pop, pop. The crack of guns right outside the window was unmistakable. We grabbed our kids, hit the floor, and stayed for about half an hour. That night, Dexter and I slept on the floor of my bedroom, if you can call it sleeping. We slept on the floor until a few nights later, my friend Dara invited Dexter and me to move in with her and her daughter. It was a mitzvah beyond imagining. Dara had a two-bedroom apartment in a different part of Venice. I shared a room with Dexter, and Dara shared a room with her daughter, Zoe. Dexter and Zoe became like brother and sister, and Dara and I supported each other with everything that happens between two single mothers making sense of their world. We still heard gunshots, helicopters, and sirens, but they were farther away, and I felt safe enough. After a year, I could afford to move into a one-bedroom apartment across the street from Dara. There, I slept in the living room and gave Dexter the bedroom. It was tough, but we made it work. We had a little garden and put up a basketball hoop. Dexter started preschool, and we kept up weekly dinners with Zoe and Dara. A year later, 
and with a better job and a burgeoning sense of hope, I got a call from my sister's former landlord. She had a two-bedroom apartment in her rent-controlled building in Santa Monica. The rent was the same as what I was paying in Venice. I'll never forget when I got that call or the first night we slept there. It felt like a true home. I knew that whatever noises startled me in the middle of the night, they were not malevolent. Moving to that place and living there for the past 26 years, this haven, was a miraculous event that to this day I'm grateful for. Finally, I had my dignity and we felt safe. Dexter grew up here and got an amazing education in Santa Monica Public Schools. Having a rent-controlled apartment made it possible for me to support Dexter and me while earning very little as I worked toward becoming financially stable. These days, even with a very good job, I'm absolutely certain that I could never afford to buy a home in LA, let alone Santa Monica. So every once in a while, I say a little prayer, hoping that nothing changes and I can stay here forever. Now, working with ECAR Minion Sedic Community Organizing, fighting to build affordable housing with LA Voice brings it all back. Having been through housing insecurity, I am acutely aware of the dire need for affordable housing in our community. I pray that people who are struggling will find relief with the affordable housing and tenant protections we're fighting for. Everyone deserves to live with dignity and safety. Everyone deserves an affordable home. I'm concerned with housing insecurity because I bore witness to the most dangerous ways it impacted people I cared for. There's so much to say about this issue, and as I reflect, dozens of stories swirl through my mind. I won't share specific client experiences, of course, but I will share just a few themes that frequently came up. If you've been through the permanent housing voucher process lately, you know that you're required to disclose your most personal medical and mental health information to receive an acuity number within a housing lottery system. The more honest you are about your personal trauma history, the impacts on your mind, your habits, your health, your housing, the higher your acuity and the faster you might receive a housing voucher. From a therapeutic perspective, this is potentially very re-traumatizing and risks the relationships individuals have with case managers who usually facilitate the scoring. It creates an exploitative dynamic in which someone needs to share their most personal and private truths which can be viewed by anyone in the Department of Housing in order to get their subsidy. In trauma therapy, we strive to create the safest, most contained space for disclosing trauma. We build trust over time and convey that therapy is confidential. We provide lots of choice about when and what the process will look like, because when someone's been harmed, their choices were taken away. When someone gets their coordinated entry system acuity score, it reduces their experience to a number that often misses the severity of their needs while costing their dignity. These are just two pieces to a puzzle of inequity and injustice many housing insecure folks repeatedly experience, and there are so many more. These interpersonal and systemic harms pile up and begin to block out any hope of change. They make people feel unworthy of anything different. You might be feeling that hopelessness as I share these few pieces of a tremendous social problem in our community. I know I felt that way. Beneath my rage is a deep sadness for our society, which prioritizes people with money 
where economic disparities are entrenched by tax structures, and the laws protect generational wealth, while social programs are wildly underfunded. When I feel into that sadness, I'm feeling vicarious trauma from all of the ways housing insecure folks I've known have been dehumanized on a daily basis. And just like I do with my clients, I recenter myself and I ask myself what else is true. Our liberation is bound together, and that isn't an idealistic or optimistic view to aspire to. It is a collective fate to address for our survival. Through therapeutic practice, I've learned that we all want to feel safe. And we often feel safest when we have support, when we're connected to others, when we have space to be free from violence and judgment. My name is Alexandra C. Tots. My pronouns are they and them. And I'm a translator, documentary filmmaker. When I saw this call for stories, it instantly struck a nerve within me. I could check just about every box on the list. Struggles to pay rent. Stuck in a bad housing situation because I couldn't afford to move. An inability to purchase a home due to income. And finally, because of my disability, I found it difficult to both stay in my home while trying to find a new one. I moved to Los Angeles 12 years ago to chase my dream of writing for film and television at what was then a cheaper real estate market and have been in the same apartment ever since. I've tried so hard to make my life in this neighborhood work, to bridge the ever-present gap between what was once my normal life and what it's like now. For most of my adulthood, entertaining in my home has been such a fundamental thing for me. Holy, almost. But over time, I've been ground down to accept the harsh reality of living in central Hollywood. Originally, I had a car, and as I began making community throughout L.A., I entertained a bit during those first few years. I invited long-lost relatives as well as brand-new friends over for dinner. I even hosted a couple of satyrs. But ultimately, I had a very hard time asking anyone to tolerate for just one evening what I was having to endure on a daily basis. When I first moved in, the building's management tacitly enforced a certain alienation as well. The resident manager was picky about actual emergencies. The first time I tried entertaining on a weekend, my toilet stopped up but he refused to have it serviced for an entire week. The atmosphere was chilling. My apartment was literally freezing during winter. For the first four years, I had no heat. I would pile blankets on my bed at night and use multiple electric heaters to stay warm. I tolerated this, assuming that my low rent wasn't being raised because I didn't complain. After four years, though, I'd had enough. I lodged a complaint with the city's housing authority. They immediately cited the management, forcing them to remedy the situation. I got a threatening voicemail from the resident manager, but he was forced to apologize, and they installed a gas heater. Of course, it was then that my rent began to be raised annually. By this time, I'd reached my tolerance threshold. My parked car was getting regularly scratched up, and I began seeking other nearby affordable housing options. There was a complex opening near the eastern edge of downtown, 
but because I'd been forced to drain some of my retirement savings the year before, I was disqualified from applying, even though my business income that year met their criteria. The exact same thing happened a few months later. Even though I qualified for a brand new complex, I was hundreds down on the wait list and eventually purged. This pattern is repeated year after year. My building was sold in 2018, resulting in new ownership and management. They immediately began clearing the building through individual tenant buyouts, as laid out in the city's notorious Cash for Keys program. I was offered a measly sum that would have barely covered my former car payments for a year, much less the market rent. I countered, but they balked. Though the current status quo has left me embittered, I have channeled my disappointment into positive action. Although I sold my car some time ago, I initiated a petition to bring preferential parking to my block and give us some sense of neighborly cohesion. Also, just prior to that, I became an activist advocating for multimodal forms of transportation, particularly bicycles. Although the ownership and management of several buildings, including mine, supported my initiative, the largest building on my block refused to get involved. Because such petitions mandate a very high threshold of resident support, I realized the impossibility of my efforts and withdrew the petition. At that point, I clearly understood that the real powers governing my neighborhood were the landlords. They're the ones who benefit most from the highly transient nature of my immediate surroundings. And they're the ones who benefit from blurring the bounds as much as possible between what's considered the tourist and residential areas of central Hollywood. Through all of this activism, I've built up a store of social capital in my building. When issues arise that affect me and my neighbors, we're able to work together to resolve and improve the situation. Even as I continue searching for a better home here in Los Angeles, I am also fighting as much as I'm able to make my home and this neighborhood as livable as possible. There's so much potential and hope when you first get married and start a family. In 1996, for under $200,000, we found a charming fixer that had great bones, replete with original cabinets, lighting, and hardwood floors. The ceiling of this charmer was also coming down, as well as a support beam that was rotten. We both had skills and energy to work on our diamond in the rough. We replaced the corroded glass fuse system with updated safe electrical, knocked down a wall, closed a doorway, and painted the walls. Warm, sunny tones of green and cream. The house was full of light and had a wonderful beach breeze even in the heat of summer. I loved our little bungalow and pushed forward, believing in the life I was building. I thought, together, we could build equity and live a happy life. It was a nice story that didn't last. Our daughter was born. She was a golden ray of sunshine, a complete delight. I assumed there would be more love, more dedication to each other and our growing family. But it was then 
that my husband started to not come home for weeks at a time. When he did come home, he would criticize and destroy the harmony of our home. I married a creative go-getter who came from very little and made his way in the world going after what he wanted. I was also creative and hardworking. What I didn't realize or understand were the chaotic, damaging compulsions of true addiction. In the meantime, I started running my own business, and soon after we had our second child. Things went from bad to worse. The writing was on the wall. I tried to ignore it and focus on the things that I thought were positive. When I found a roll of tinfoil behind the seat of his truck, it struck me as odd, but I didn't realize it was used for smoking crack. His shame, my ignorance, led to a sort of paralysis. I didn't know what to do, who to tell, who not to tell, so I put my head down and worked twice as hard to keep myself and my kids safe. I tried to normalize and protect my kids from the effects of his behavior. I made excuses and told them Daddy was fine and he would be home soon. The next 13 years were spent living in a state of chaos and fear. One minute we were millionaires, the next we were on the brink of financial destitution. I certainly didn't share this with my family. I was ashamed that I had made such a bad choice in a life partner. I knew the wheels were coming off the bus, and it was time to get out. I was living in a house of mirrors. I wanted out but couldn't find the door. I finally got up the nerve to tell him I was leaving, which led to more rage and anger. My belongings were broken and thrown into the backyard. We were locked out of the back part of the house, so for the next several months, my kids and I slept on the floor of the front bedroom. When things got really bad, we slept on friends' sofas. In my mind, no one could know what was going on. I acted as if I was a normal working mom, going about my life. Between my full-time job, childcare, school, and sports, I looked for an apartment. Unless you have money in the bank or a family that can help, coming up with first, last, and monthly rent can be out of reach. By sheer luck, I found a rent-controlled apartment. My kids and I moved in with literally just four forks and a chair. Still not sure how this happened. It was the height of the recession, and my business was extremely slow. Money was tight for several years. I worked whatever jobs I could. In another streak of luck, I got hired onto a TV production. The hours were long, and I needed someone to take my kids to school and pick them up. At least there was money coming in to staunch the flow of money going out. I had a great time on that show, working on over 50 episodes over four seasons. I made friends, honed my skills, confidence, and scope of knowledge. The recession receded, and my business slowly resuscitated into the flourishing enterprise it is today. Over a decade later, I'm in the same apartment and have transformed it into a beautiful living space and office. The fact is, 
I can't leave here. My children are self-sufficient young adults and business is thriving. However, I still worry about paying the rent. Should I get sick or we dip into another recession? Despite eight years of consistently good business, the price of housing makes home ownership impossible for me. Without the security of owning real estate, which continually increases in value, I have concerns about the future. I consider myself lucky to have landed in a beautiful apartment with the knowledge that even this toehold would be double the price if it were at market value. I constantly think about how if I could move out, the next person who needed affordable housing could move into this apartment. So the cycle of reciprocity would continue, but that's not how things work today. It used to be that one could earn an honest living and save up to move from an apartment to a house, then maybe use that house to be able to retire or travel. Especially in LA, owning a home is like a magical bank account that doubles, triples, and quadruples in worth, and you can live in it. For this very reason, home ownership is now out of reach for so many of us. There is a wrench in the cogs that needs to be removed. It's Rabbi Sharon Browse. You know, in the book of Genesis, there's this moment when Abraham is visited by God, the Holy One. He's sitting outside of his tent in the heat of the day, and there's this moment of divine revelation a peak spiritual moment in Abraham's life. But then right in the middle of this holy encounter, Abraham looks up and he sees three people. They're ragged and tired and hungry, and they're coming toward him. So he turns to God and he says, forgive me, but I've got some people who need my love and care right now. The three men who visited Abraham that day, they turned out to be angels. They were divine messengers. And they remind us that we're called to treat every single person as though they're all messengers sent directly by the Holy One. I wanna say that I'm just so grateful to our community members for sharing these powerful and, and sometimes painful stories, for being the messengers that remind us always of our spiritual obligation to see the divine in one another. The stories that we've just heard remind us that the housing crisis is not just a political or economic issue, it's a moral issue, it's a human issue. These stories are courageous acts of truth-telling. They're, they're hard to hear, they're honest and sincere, and they shine a light of responsibility on every one of us. They remind us that there's no other, there's only us. The only question is, what do we do now? Let these stories not be told in vain. Let them not only awaken us, but change us. In light of these stories, I hope that we will rededicate our hearts because forgive me, but we've got some people who need our love and care right now. We're sharing our stories because we are working to change these policies. Email us at mtorganizing at ecar.org to get involved in our work for housing justice, because together we can transform our private struggles into public action that reflects our values of dignity for all people. 
Thank you to Kathleen Early for reading the stories of our members that preferred to remain anonymous. This podcast was produced by Vera Blossom, Gary Buckler, Ben Cooley, and myself, Brooke Wurchafter.